and welcome to Smarter, Richer, Braver, the podcast that's specially curated for you, a generation of young people who want to step up, stand out, and live life on their own terms. A generation who aim to do better, not just for themselves, but for humanity as a whole. A generation who aim to be smarter, richer, and braver, because that's exactly what the world today needs. I'm your host, Marilyn Pinto, author and founder at KFI Global, and I'd like to warmly welcome all you Gen Zers. A special shout out to all our KFI Global students listening in. Please know that this podcast was made with you in mind, and I promise it's going to be worth your attention. This podcast is strictly for those 25 years and younger. If you are older than that, please listen at your own risk. Common side effects include regret and anger for not having heard this earlier in your life. In today's episode, we're going to look into the future and unravel the mysteries of how understanding and connecting with your future self, that's you, 10, 20, or 30 years from now, can shape your choices today. I know, thinking about yourself so far into the future isn't something you youngsters typically do. It's hard enough for you all to deal with the present, let alone the distant future. But there are real advantages to doing that, and it matters a whole lot more than you might realize. Our guest today is Hal Hirschfield. Hal is a professor of marketing, behavioral decision-making, and psychology at UCLA's Anderson School of Management. He recently published a highly acclaimed book titled Your Future Self, How to Make Tomorrow Better Today. In this episode, Hal's going to guide you through this novel concept, but that's not all. Hal has a PhD in psychology from Stanford University and is also an expert in decision-making. He has some fantastic strategies around this that he's going to share. I know that his insights and expertise will deeply impact you and help you lead a life that's smarter, richer, and braver. Welcome to the podcast, Hal, and thank you so much for doing this. Thank you, Marilyn. I'm really excited to be talking with you today. With so much to discuss, I just want to dive straight in, okay? So can you tell us, what do you think are some of the common myths that youngsters have about their future selves? Yeah, no, this is a really good question because I think we first have to say, what is a future self? So someone who is of this sort of, you know, quote unquote, youngster category, right? And so, you know, there's actually one research project that was done that asked college students to think into the very distant future. And they said sometime over the age of 40, which of course, being over the age of 40, I find funny because I don't think of myself as very, very (laughs) older in the very distant future. Some of the myths actually boil down to the ways that we think about aging. So my speculation is that a lot of younger people, when they think of aging, they think of the losses that they will experience in terms of looks and physical activity and energy. It could also be me at 60, right? So I'll stick with the one narrow idea of like a very distant future self, an older future self. The myth is that older people must be lonely and depressed since their lives look to be very different from the way that they are when we're younger. The reality is, if you look at the data, Older people experience heightened well-being compared to their younger counterpart. In part because the happiness curve also goes up when you're older. That's exactly right. And part of the reason is that when you get older, you have sort of a limited time perspective that you spend your time doing things that matter. And 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 by the way, young people do this too when they face the end of, say, high school or the end of college or the end of some period of time we all naturally tend to gravitate toward the things that matter rather than the sort of, you know, interesting but possibly frivolous activities, right? So that is one one myth, myth. I would say, about our future self. 
Okay. Let's get down to the gist of it. Why is it important for them to think about their future selves? And how would this benefit them? Because I think once they understand this, then it becomes so much more tangible for them. Yeah, absolutely. Look, I mean, it wouldn't be the first time someone said, you know, think about the future. It's important to recognize that the decisions you do today, you know, make today will impact you later. I think there's a different way of looking at this, which is that our future selves in some ways are like relationship partners. They're like people who we have a sense of responsibility over, just as your parents have a sense of responsibility over you. We have a sense of responsibility over our future selves. And the reason that these relationships are important is because the things we do now will ultimately end up having consequences for the people we become later. But what it does mean is that it becomes that much more important to think about the ways to sort of balance out our happiness and well-being and our decisions over time so that we get some benefits today and we get some benefits tomorrow. And there's also this other wrinkle here, which is that doing things for tomorrow, whether that's, you know, our decisions about health, our decisions about finances, our decisions about our careers, can also give us benefits today. Now, the one thing I want to say is that it is really important to do things that are sort of a splurge because those types of things create the memories that They're our memories. future self yeah. looks back on, right? So and are you so saying you should, you should have a balance that. between the two? Yeah. In fact, in working on my book, I had a conversation with a financial advisor named Paul Fender, and he came up with the term harmony, which I think is better than balance because, yeah, you know, I guess. balance implies that there's, a, you know, a teeter-totter, a seesaw back and forth, yeah. right? Harmony implies that two voices can coexist, coexisting. two yeah. selves. Exactly, exactly. Yes. Okay. So I love that analogy. That does make it a, a lot more tangible. But even knowing all that, right, thinking about our future selves can feel odd and uncomfortable. Could you suggest mm -hmm. some ways to make our future selves feel more real and connected to our current lives? And, and how could this help us make better choices? Absolutely. It's first important to, to let's like narrow this down and say, what future self are we talking about here? Okay. Because yeah. That can, of course, get very abstract, like you said, right? What do I want to, you know, do in the next stage of my life? Well, let's just start there. You know, it becomes very difficult to go much further into the future. Let's think That's about true. five years from now, right? Yeah. And so one of the problems is that because of the uncertainty and because of the sort of abstract nature of that future self, even in five years, we can end up sort of putting on our blinders and burying our heads in the sand and because it's too complicated too complicated, it's yeah. too anxiety provoking, it's too uncertain, you know, all yeah. those things, right? And so one recommendation that I have is to start by trying to make that future self more concrete. I love the exercise of writing a letter to your future self, but then also writing a letter that your future self pens back to you. Step into the shoes of that future self and write a letter back. Talk about, you know, what you want life to look like at whatever period of time that is. What do you think you'll be doing with your time? How will you spend it? Who will you spend it with? And what is your day-to-day going to look like? And what might your values be? These sorts of things, right? But then you take a break and write a letter back, almost like you're having a conversation. If you were to go on a date, it would not be a great date if you were the yeah. only one talking or the other person was the only one talking, right? But of course, in this particular case, our future self doesn't yet exist. This is by nature, you know, by definition, an abstract. Un yeah, and it's a self that doesn't, it's not realized. So why not try to create a little bit more 
sense of concreteness, a little bit more detail, a little more vividness around that future self by having that conversation, by forcing that sort of back and forth. And that makes a lot of sense. But let's come back to talking about your commitment devices, right? What exactly are these and how can they help us stick to our long-term goals? And can you give us a couple of examples of these commitment devices? So commitment devices is, you know, this is a sort of a different type of strategy that we can use to foster a better relationship with our future selves because what they essentially do is constrain our behavior. So let's think about it this way. I'll make it concrete. Let's imagine that there is this version of me that wants to, let's say, get up tomorrow morning and go for a run, right? There's also a version of me tomorrow afternoon that's going to want to say, I did it. This morning I went for a run and I can spend the rest of my day doing other things. And then there's this other version of me. This is the guy that screws things up. The guy who's going to get up tomorrow morning and say, I want to sleep a little longer because I'm tired. And that's the guy that will mess all of these plans up, right? And so what commitment devices do is make it harder for that sort of middle self, if you will. To mess things up. To mess things up, right? So make it, it keep, easier for it, them it to do it. It keeps you on the straight and narrow, basically. The, your commitment exactly. devices will help you. Exactly. So you can call it, you can put guardrails on. Now, there's a variety of ways to do this. So you know, one way is what economists and psychologists call a soft commitment, where I just say, you know, I could just call you up, Marilyn, and say like, hey, tomorrow morning, I'm going to go for a run. And then you could call me tomorrow afternoon and say, did you did do you it? Did you actually and go I'd for your run? Yeah, and I'll be like <laughs> yeah. a little embarrassed if I said, yeah, yeah, I didn't, right? Now, it's not like you would stop talking to me yeah. if I did that, but it would be embarrassing to me and it yeah. might sort of hurt my pride. And that may be enough to get me to say, okay, I got to get up and do it. Okay, we can go a little step further and we can sort of like take away the ability to mess things up a little bit. Like, so, you know, for instance, I could move my alarm clock across the room to make it easier for me to wake up. I could set out my workout shoes. And I know these are sort of like examples people know, but I want to just like give yeah, this yeah. as a sense. Yeah, right, because it's example, a commitment. Right? These are different sorts of commitment devices that you exactly. can Exactly. Now, there's also uh, another one that, that you, you could call it a contract device or a punishment device where I would promise to punish myself if I don't follow through with the thing. Yeah. So, now, I talk about this in much more depth in the book, but the, yeah. you know, the thing about commitment devices is that it's the current self who chooses them and yeah. the future self is the one who, you know, in a way gets punished or gets benefit. Benefit yeah. is from them, right? So, so there's a real tricky balance because we must choose things that are strong enough to ensure that we go through with the thing we want to do, but that they're not so draconian or so punishing that we don't end up... That we don't end up... Yeah. Oh, that we get turned off completely from the... Yeah, that makes sense. So again, harmony, balance comes... The concept comes back. (laughs) I think that's right. I think that's right. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. Do you think a lot about your future self when you were young? Is it something that you've always done or... That's a really good question because, you know, of course, now it's all constructed memory and hindsight, (laughs) right? So actually, I started it when I was 12 as I started writing like a journal, if you will, like on a... It was like a Word document. You know, my parents first got a computer. I'm probably dating myself here. And part of what I did when I wrote entries in that, it was to think about how I would look back on what I was writing. You know, so in other words, I wasn't thinking necessarily about what my future self would be doing, but I would be, I was thinking about what he was feeling in trying to remember the things that I was doing. Now, that said, I can't say that I've said, you know, when I was like 16, I thought, oh, here's exactly what I want to be doing when I'm 25 or when I'm 30. 
But I think, you know, when I was in my early 20s, I spent a lot of time thinking about this because it felt so necessary. Like I had to know what I was going to do. And, you know, I laugh at this now a little bit because, of course, the things that I had planned for myself at 22 were very different than what I was doing at 32. And I could never have predicted it. But I think that I gave, unintentionally, I think I gave myself some flexibility because I don't think I put so much pressure on myself to say, this has to be the way things work out or I'm a failure. Yeah. And, you know, I think one of the problems that arises with younger planners is that we mistake plans for the way things have to be. And I think we can plan, but then also change those plans, right? Yeah. And, and I think that's a problem that a lot of youngsters have. I mean, they don't know what they're going to do. They're really unsure of the future, but they're forced to either choose a subject or choose a career path. That mm -hmm. really stresses them out a lot because they don't know, right? Exactly. And the irony is that in creating rigid plans, we think that we're doing something good for our future selves because we yeah. are trying to make life sort of more certain and better for them. But the reality may be that we could accidentally constrain them because we're saying the plan's well, too rigid. thing I said I have to do. <laughs> yeah, the plan is too rigid. Adam Grant has a wonderful essay about this, about the problem with asking kids what they want to be when they grow up and then sort of hammering home that message so much so that people end up doing yeah. something only because they said they wanted this, to when they were a different version of themselves earlier that's true. on. That, that is so true. That is such a problem. Can you maybe give us a, an example of a mistake that you made in your younger years that maybe you could have avoided by thinking about your future self? Yeah, I do remember that I spent a decent amount of that semester not fully dialed into classes because I was, you know, tired and I was like, you know, probably partying Otherwise too distracted. much or something like that, yeah. right? Yeah, <laughs> and you know, it's funny because of course, some of that socializing was great because it created more of a sense of connection with other people. But then I look back and I say, I missed out on, because I wasn't fully present in those Absolutely. classes. Now, I mean, Academics matter to me, like I am a professor, right? But I, I sometimes say I had an opportunity there to learn from some of the brightest minds and I didn't squander it. But it's, it's funny because of course, you know, that, that translates to now, right? Now as well, like I'm no longer what I would think as, you know, like a late adolescent, right? But I do think about what are the things that I'm going to look back on and feel like I wasn't fully present and I missed something, you know, now look, sure, it's, I have my yeah. own kids. And they're little kids and they're at the age where they want to spend time with me. And my daughter is seven and a half. Like, I know, like, she'll be a teenager in not that long <laughs> and won't want to spend time with me. And so when I am with her, there are times when I'm distracted. You know, I'm thinking about something yeah. from work and I'm thinking about whatever's on my phone. And how can I, you know, I often... Look, I still do it, but I feel like one of the things I'm doing much better on now is saying like, you're more aware how can I be present? Exactly. One thing I just want to add on there is that, yeah. you know, part of that awareness is also the awareness that I, you still make mistakes. It's really hard to hold yourself to a standard where you say, well, I will now forevermore be present in every interaction. Well, that's not going to happen. Not, and I'm going to quickly yeah. be very mad at myself, right? But can I do it less? Can I be... You know, could I be more dialed in and like make the mistake last? Like yeah. that's it doesn't have to be perfect, right? For. Your first attempt at it yeah. is not going to be perfect. Yeah, that's yeah, a really exactly. good point. This podcast isn't meant to entertain you. It's meant to help you do life better by showing you how to think about and navigate important issues that aren't usually talked about to youngsters. But we believe that you need to hear this because it has the potential 
to change your life and the lives of other young people like you. So please share this episode with someone you care about. And if you haven't already, please hit the follow button. It helps us get these meaningful insights and messages in front of more youngsters. I'd like to switch tracks a little bit and talk about your research around decision-making yet. Could you give us, uh, give our listeners some pointers about good decision-making strategies or frameworks they can use specifically around college life and early on in their careers? It's a wonderful question. I think it's hard. I wish there was, if you do these three things, you will suddenly find yourself right happy. But I think injecting some intentionality into your decisions is what's really important. And what I mean by that, I'm going to say two things here. So the first thing is, try to think a little bit about what's important to you truly. Like, what are your values? Because it can be really easy to decide just, you know, on individual cases. Well, I get this option, I should do this thing. And then another, you know, I to make another decision, I'll do that thing. But without sort of like a guiding set of values or principles, it can be really hard to like act in a consistent manner. The most important thing to me is that I deepen my relationship with friends. Well, okay, fine. That may guide me in terms of even the classes that I pick or when I go to get to go live on my own, right? Uh, I'll, I'll add one other thing, which is that, so I, I mean, they may not have heard of him, but Al Bandura was this sort of pioneering psychologist. He has this wonderful paper from the 1980s called Chance Encounters and Fortuitous Life Paths. And the idea is that we oftentimes fail to appreciate how this sort of random occurrences, the, the quote unquote chance encounters, end up putting us down very different paths moving forward. No, that doesn't mean that we should somehow be, you know, some like this isn't meant to be sort of a mystical statement. What it is meant to suggest is that if we are open to fun, new experiences, sometimes those are the things that end up really putting us down new and interesting paths, right? So well, many of us fail to recognize that like, just by random assignment, the people we live with early on are the people we become friends with. And I was just reflecting on this because I had coffee with one of my best friends from the first year of college. And he and I didn't live in the same dorm, but we did happen to take a class on Mozart together. And we happened to sit next to each other that first class. And like one of the other students in the class said something and he and I both made the same joke and we realized we sort of had a similar perspective. <laughs> and then I started hanging out with his friends from his dorm and so on. And we were just saying, this is now, you know, 25 years later, we said, if I hadn't sat next to you, I don't know if I would be friends with those people. We just all went on vacation together with our kids. And so, you know, it's sometimes sort of being open to different experiences then creates a big paths that we couldn't have predicted. Yeah. You mentioned a psych one. I've noticed recently psychology is a very popular subject for students to take. Can you talk a little bit about why this might be so and what are some of the pathways that this can lead to? So, you know, I mean, look, psychology is fundamentally about understanding ourselves and other people. And, that, you know, if there's yeah. one thing that we want to know more about. It's probably ourselves, yeah. right? It's the reason why personality Correct. quizzes are so popular online, <laughs> right? But also, I mean, what psychology is dealing with is a huge sort of tent of topics, right? You know, everything from the sort of quote-unquote abnormal or clinical side of the equation all the way to, you know, what some researchers have called positive psychology and trying to yeah. you know, foster more meaning and well-being to also, you know, understanding how people interact with products and design apps and, and what's yeah. like consumer psychology, right? And so it is a field 
that houses all of these topics, right? And so, you know, going into psych means that you could, of course, pursue the more like traditional clinical path. You could also pursue a business path. It really does afford a lot of options. One thing to say back to your question earlier about, you know, stressing out about these decisions is, of course, what you do in college doesn't necessarily mean that has to be the thing that you do later (laughs) on, right? That is so true. But students, I mean, I understandably, you know, considering how much pressure is put on them to choose their majors or choose their subjects, they really tend to think that this is a life or death decision, not knowing that a majority of people work in fields that are completely unrelated to the field of study. And I I keep telling them not to stress so much about it. I understand the kind of pressure that they're in. Thank you for that. What you spoke about psychology. I know a lot of students want to take it. And it's nice to understand that it gives you some foundational knowledge. It can be used across different fields. And that gives you a really nice understanding of the subject. Because remember, a lot of them also just take it based on something that they think it's going to be. Like, you know, they, mm-hmm. they assume it's going to be, oh, now that I know that, I'm going to understand how people think. I'm going to be able to read people's mind. Or because one of the aspects is criminal psychology. It's like, oh, wow, that should be interesting. No, it, it, there's so much more than yeah. that. And there's so much comes so before much that. that. Yeah. Students are choosing subjects based on very little prior knowledge. Even the short sort of intro that you gave, I'm sure is going to be really helpful. So thank you for that. Okay. So most of our listeners, many of our listeners are on the cusp of their educational journey, you know, with a good number of them contemplating business school, right? Can you talk a little bit about this choice? Like what fields of study complement this well? Is having work experience prior to applying for business school important and how so? Just just a little bit, like how we spoke about psych, I'd like you to give us your thoughts on business school. Well, it's interesting because, you know, business school, of course, draws from so many different fields, right? You know, there's the sort of popular saying, you know, poets and quants, right? So there are people who are much more on the sort of creative side and there are people who are much more on the quantitative side, you know? So anecdotally, you know, I've had students who take a more traditional path where they've worked in consulting or they've worked in finance or they've been in sort of brand management and then they come to business school to do something a little different. You know, I've also had people who've worked in the Peace Corps or they've lived overseas and taught English somewhere or something like that. And they're coming at it from a very different perspective, right? So it's not as if there's, you know, one thing, right? Because if you do the more traditional econ or sort of any of the other like more quantitative fields, math uh, based fields, that can help. But, you know, so much of business is also about the psychology end of the equation, right? And so, you know, even a philosophy major can end up being successful. No. That said, once you get to business school, there is the expectation that you're doing a mix of study. It's not just that you're now deepening the soft side or deepening the sort of quant side, but rather you're doing both, you know? And so I I do think if you have just zero interest in sort of quantitative assessment, like that may end up being hard. Of course, if you haven't taken any of those classes, you might not realize that like perhaps that is something that's of interest, right? And on the flip side, if you have zero interest in leadership skills, that's going to be hard as well, right? So there's really kind of a a mix there. I also think that business school makes a lot of sense when somebody has been out for a couple of years. In the workforce. Uh, In the workforce, exactly. And they can have some perspective on what the, you know, quote unquote, real world is like. And they get to take some of those experiences and reflect back on them as they're learning some of the theories and frameworks. Exactly. That makes a lot of sense. All right. Coming to which, you name one of the 40 most outstanding business school professors in the world, right? Now, that's some pretty high praise there. What specific traits of yours do you think were most responsible for this accolade? And, and please don't be modest. I'd love for our students to know what to look for in a great teacher or in a good professor. Oh, I appreciate that question. Okay. I will say that I do genuinely love interacting with 
younger students. And so I'm curious about them. I have a strong desire for them to want to learn the things that I'm trying to teach them. I also, you know, look, I also like being up in front of you and I get some energy from that. No, you know, I think that helps in the classroom because I like having fun in the classroom. And that doesn't mean it's like a joke a minute. I think my sort of approach to teaching is that people learn better if they're enjoying the experience. And it doesn't have to be just sort of data point after data point, bullet point after bullet point, right? But if they're enjoying there and they want to come to class, they're also going to want to learn. Yes. And um, I know, so, and I've seen it with kids and right from my kids who are very young, right up to, it doesn't matter. I don't think age is a constraint here, but if you like the teacher, you like the subject, right? I mean, if you look yeah. at your, your favorite subjects in school where you're actually your favorite teachers. And so I think teachers play such a great, powerful role in in shaping what students like, what their interests are. And that's really scary. And that's very highly, it's a big responsibility as well, don't you think? I, I think it, it really is. <laughs> I'll say one other thing, which is, you know, there's a concept in psychology called the curse of knowledge. And the curse of knowledge means that the educator, if they know so much about a given topic, they sometimes kind of have a hard time teaching it because they fail yes. to appreciate. I would say that I often, I don't suffer from that. Like, I think sometimes in teaching, I'll recognize I thought I knew something, yeah. but I didn't really. And then I have to go back and say, let me see if I can yeah. like really learn it yeah. from the ground up and then sort of yeah. transfer that over. Right. So yeah. I do notice that sometimes even sitting in a seminar, you know, for other professors, the ones that don't go over well are the ones where the, the presenter assumes too much knowledge on the part of the audience. Yeah, that's really very true. And also I have learned that I, I've said I also with every class I take, I learn so much from the students as well. And and that's always it always keeps you on your toes when, when you're doing that. You're learning about their perspectives and something they possibly, you know, just because of the passage of time or because you've forgotten what it's like to be an 18 or 20 year old. It's very eye-opening. And I, I think that's so important as well that you constantly keep learning from the students that you're supposedly teaching. <laughs> A hundred percent, a hundred percent. I think that's exactly right. <laughs> okay. I, I just want to end with this. What message would you like to give our young listeners? Ooh, there's a lot on the table there. Okay. There's so many different ways to think yeah. about this. I guess the if there's a message there, it would be in a way to lean into the uncertainty about this time period in life because it's not always going to be uncertain and know that everybody else is experiencing the same amount of uncertainty as you are, right? And, you know, at the same time, these stages go by faster than you think they will, right? And so it's okay to feel anxious at the same time. Like, I think what you don't want to have is your future self look back on whatever this period of time is and say, I wish I had done more of X, Y, and Z. That's a wonderful message. Thank you so much. Thank you, Hala. My pleasure, Marilyn. This was a great conversation. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening. I want to help you use what you learned here. And the best way to do that is to get a podcast buddy. That's someone who also listens to this podcast. Then talk to your podcast buddy about the one takeaway from this episode that resonated with you the most. That's it. That's all you have to do. Remember that much of what is talked about in this podcast is stuff that's not typically talked about to young people. And it should be. It's stuff that you need to know so that you can lead a life that's, you guessed it, smarter, richer, and braver. This is your host, Marilyn Pinto, signing off. Until next time.
If you have any questions or topics you'd like us to broach in our upcoming episodes, please email us at smarterricherbraver at gmail.com. And if you'd like to sign up for one of our award-winning programs, go to kfi.global and check out our upcoming schedule.